But first, 10 people caught in an avalanche near Invermere during a heliskiing expedition. Three people from Germany are dead. Four others are injured. Jeremy or Jamie Dahl is a reporter with Global News and is in Invermere. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. And I know the circumstances are tragic, but uh, what is the feeling in and around Invermere right now where you are? You know, it's such a small town that it's really surrounded by mountain activity, mountain culture, the outdoors. Everyone is so connected and it's such a big part of their life. Everybody is is just devastated. We were just talking with neighbors who watched yesterday as the helicopters, one by one, were landing at the Invermere Hospital, transporting some of those that were injured and some of those that didn't make it out of those choppers, you know, into ambulances or uh, into the hospital. Uh, And everybody was just horrified, devastated. Uh, One woman said she was lighting candles as she watched all afternoon these choppers land. So, you know, it's touching everybody here, even upon learning that the victims that, that didn't survive are from all the same small village in Germany. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, They are from Germany, Bavaria, I believe. Um, And there has been some reaction back home already, hasn't there? Yeah, there has. Uh, The mayor of that community sent us a statement and he said, you know, all of us in our community are deeply shocked by the accident. We feel deep sorrow. He said, I myself am shocked, stunned. And he said, I still cannot believe just how cruel life can be. He said, it's a reminder of how fleeting life is. Uh, so uh, we will be hearing I think, a little bit more uh, from the people there in the days ahead. But one of the injured actually is also from the same community uh, in Bavaria, Germany. So Do- a very difficult day for uh, community members there. Well, a difficult day indeed. Do we know how the survivors managed to survive? I mean, in a deadly avalanche, uh, we do know we had the uh, three victims, of course, four others injured. But there were people that uh, were not affected. Were they not around the snow? Do we know any more about that? We don't know exact circumstances surrounding that. We don't even know the size of the slide yet. Um, But in just about... 15 minutes time, RK Heliski, the company involved, is going to be taking questions from us. So we're going to a press conference there very shortly, and we're hoping to find out some of those answers. Yeah, we'll keep you just a couple minutes more, not too long, because I know you want to get positioned for that conference. But, uh, Jamie, just a little bit more about uh, what they were doing in the area. Uh, for those who are not familiar with heliskiing, how does this work? So with heli skiing, uh, you know, you're after those, the powder, you're after the fresh lines. So this is the un- untouched terrain. So you, you get up, you, everyone piles into the chopper, and um, then the helicopter pilot will drop you off in an area. Um, and and the, these companies do a lot of testing beforehand, making sure, that, you know, testing for the, uh, the conditions. And if it's safe, they say, you know, then they'll go out and... Um, and then you get out of the chopper and you, you ski down. Um, so, you know, you're after that, that fresh powder and it can be just the most beautiful experience ever. And on many days it is. And on many days, you know, people will make the right choice and bad things will happen. And sometimes they'll make a bad choice and, uh, and good things will happen. You know what I mean? You just, you just never know. That's what you're playing with, with, with Mother Nature. And unfortunately, though, this year, the snowpack has been very difficult, very tricky. It's been weak. 
Um, and it's continued to sort of stay like that all season long. And I know safety is one of the uh, primary things that all hella skiing companies are always taking a look at. Uh, uh, they're very safety conscious. But as you mentioned, uh, this year has been unpredictable all around the province. I mean, temperatures uh, either side of zero, windy conditions and things that are really uh, not the norm by far. Uh, but this is a Canadian experience. If you think of Canada and wanting to do something, and if you have the money for it because it's not cheap, but if you want to do something absolutely kind of breathtaking in nature, boy, hella skiing is it. And I guess it is really the chase of the powder, isn't it? Absolutely. Like you're after that deep pow. You know, you, you want to go and and have your fresh turns. And I, and I mean, the views are absolutely incredible. Um yeah, it's it's there's nothing quite like it. It isn't a, it's, for some it would be a bucket list item. It's an experience of a lifetime for others, uh, and so yeah, you can see why people would come. There was a fatality as well with another highly skiing outfit in out of Banff not long ago as, uh, as well. And so I know this now these these are really raising a lot of questions as to you know why should there be parameters put in place. Should they still be going out when all these warnings keep coming up, when they know the experts are saying that this is a really tricky snowpack? And I think those are going to be some questions that a lot of people are going to be sort of dealing with and debating over the next uh, days and weeks here. And we certainly do know, as you mentioned, that there is this news conference coming up this hour. Jamie, what else are you looking for from the uh, heliskiing company and the helicopter company? Uh, what answers do you need answered? I think the biggest thing that a lot of people want to know is why did you go out there? You know, what were the conditions that day? We know that they were listed as considerable. What did they do before they went out? How did they weigh the risk? Uh, could anything have been done to prevent this tragedy? I think that's the biggest thing. Um, and, you know, what are they going to take away from this? And is something, anything going to change as a result? Okay. Also, their guide, it's important to know, was caught in the slide as well and is in serious condition in hospital. We'll yeah. be looking on the conditions of those four people that that did survive this. Absolutely. A tough situation all around and uh, certainly very disturbing for people in Invermere. Anytime you see something of this scale, seeing the helicopters coming in and out uh, over the last day and a bit since this happened. Jamie Dahl, thank you so much for spending time with us before this news conference and uh, all the best to you. Thank you. You're welcome. And it's Bruce Plackett in for Jill Bennett. Well, no doubt about it, you're probably feeling the pinch and worried about more pinches to come. The cost of everything continues to go up just after we've had a year of already high inflation. Uh, the cost of food still going up. Property taxes, well, we've heard about the big increases in areas like Sur Surrey, over 17%. Vancouver, close to 11%. And uh, just general inflation when it comes to all those services and the goods you're buying. So, do we abandon some of the principles that we've always held? Things like uh, fighting climate change. And what about the government's role in this? What about the taxes related to climate change? Well, the tax on gasoline at the pump, as we found out this week, is going to climb from the current 11 cents a litre, which is still quite a bit, up to over 37 cents a liter by April 1st in the year 2030. 2030 sounds like a long ways away, but that's only seven years. 
So what do you think? Where are we going with this? And what are the optics for the government when it comes to, you know, these carbon taxes and uh, fighting uh, climate change through uh, through using the stick? Uh, to talk more about this, we welcome Catherine Harrison, who is a professor of political st- science studying environmental climate and energy policy at UBC. Catherine, thanks so much for uh, joining us. My pleasure. You know, I, I have to say that, you know, this is a bit of a stick, and I don't think many politicians would even uh, argue that when it comes to uh, being at the provincial or federal level. We are trying to convince people to change their ways. But this also comes at a time when people are really struggling uh, just to make ends meet. By the end of the month, which we've just come through, do they have enough money to cover bills? Um, Do you think the government is uh, aware of uh, this kind of uh, dichotomy? Oh, I'm sure they are. Um, I I assume that's part of why they are significantly increasing the um, the carbon tax rebates for low and middle income households, extending the range of households that are eligible for that. Um, but I think the other way to look at this is the reason that we are seeing this increase in the, the cost of living is because we're vulnerable to the actions of despots like Vladimir Putin. The cost of living increases because we are dependent on fossil fuels, and it's a global market. So I think another way to look at it is that we can save ourselves money by becoming less dependent on um, transportation fuels and also save ourselves money by mitigating climate change and avoiding some very severe costs down the road. You know, there may be some people out there feeling like myself at times. uh, Yeah, I understand that. We have to uh, wean ourselves off of uh, fossil fuels eventually, but do we have to do it right now? <laughs> and and oh there has boy, to be a do time. We ever. <laughs> the, um, well, we've now got about 1.1 to 1.2 C of warming globally. And we saw 600 people die in Vancouver in a three-day heat dome. It's going to get much worse, you know, disproportionately worse as the temperature goes up. We're on track to uh, have warming of 2.5 C, which could be just devastating for humanity. So there's no time to lose. We're on track to hit 1.5 C in 2030. Um, We've been putting it off already for over 30 years, and we've run out of time. So the, the problem with climate change is it's caused by everything we do. It's caused by all countries, and in a carbon intensive, uh, intensive country like Canada, It's caused by how we move around, how we heat our buildings, how we run our industries. And we would all like to think that someone else is the cause, but we all are. And we'll need to all be part of that solution. And it's getting desperate. We haven't made our targets uh, by any standard, not even close. Uh, And we've had uh, climate taxes already, carbon taxes already in place. What's gone wrong? What do we have to do differently? Um. One of the interesting things about B.C. being the first province to adopt a carbon tax in 2008 is it provided this natural experiment that economists were able to compare what happened in British Columbia with what happened in other Canadian provinces. And the resounding conclusion is that the carbon tax did work to reduce emissions below what they would have otherwise been, but we need to do more. 
So we have made progress in reducing the amount of emissions growth that would have happened, but we need more aggressive regulations, a higher carbon price, and that's what this policy is about, um, greater transition of how we move around. And there's just no avoiding it. No avoiding it and uh, doing the right thing. That's uh, something that we hear a lot about in Canada and in BC and in Vancouver, you know, right down to the local level. But I know that there are lots of other people that will point out, and I hear the arguments, uh, you know, around the dinner tables, uh, that argument that, yeah, we could do all of this, but we're never going to get the bigger polluters on board. And Canada uh, it doesn't matter what we do with carbon taxes. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is, you heard this too, um, do we continue to do the right thing and hope to lead by example? Do we even matter when it comes to an international example? Um, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, Canada is not a global leader. Much as we would like to think we are, we've been a global laggard for more than 25 years. The global leaders are in Europe. Um, We are not a small polluter. We're a top 10 uh, country in terms of our emissions. And we are among the highest per capita emissions. So every Canadian historically has contributed more than any other, uh, a citizen of any other country in the world towards the problem of climate change. So we are the problem. And it's not just industry. In fact, if you look at Canada's emissions inventory, under half of it is industrial sources. And the rest is small sources like motor vehicles, airplanes, buildings, farms, um, the you know solid waste facilities. So we can't keep pointing to other countries and other sectors because we need to get to net zero by mid-century. Um, and, and there's no way to do it by counting on everyone else. What's standing in the way? Do you think it is uh, the cost of doing it? Is it uh, more the government not investing in technology? Or is it people really saying, I can't afford it? What is the biggest thing that we're fighting as we try to hit these targets? I think there's multiple things. In a country like Canada that has a very carbon-intensive economy, governments have had pushback both from the large industrial emitters and voters. So the oil and gas industry accounts for the single largest share, 27% of emissions in Canada, and they have resisted time and again limits on their emissions, and they're doing that again now. The second largest share and the the other sector that has seen dramatic growth is transportation emissions. That's just under 25% of Canada's emissions. Uh, And that has seen dramatic growth. Canadians drive the least fuel-efficient vehicles in the world. And so we have also seen pushback on the kinds of measures that can shift that, like carbon taxes with rebates, Um, And so governments have been reluctant to do that. And finally, we have had political parties that have taken advantage of an opportunity to mobilize opposition, to win votes by misleading citizens in terms of how much they're paying, what the size of their rebates are, what share of the increase in motor fuel prices is actually attributable to the carbon tax and how much of it is Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. 
And it is Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. Thanks for being with us. Well, this week we did learn that the tax on gas at the pump is going to be going up in a seven-year span from about 11 cents a liter up to over 37 cents a liter. And also in the provincial budget, these are just the provincial taxes, okay, when it comes to fighting climate. But in the provincial budget, the levy for natural gas for home heating and other purposes, climbing from about 10 cents a cubic meter to well over uh, 32 cents. And um, also there are going to be increases in propane, kerosene, butane, ethane, methanol, dozens of fuels, all part of this legislation, all part of the idea that we need to do something to fight climate change. That is what the government is doubling down on at a time when many of us are just trying to get by and uh, make sure we have enough money to pay our bills. We have been talking with Catherine Harrison uh, about the optics of the government and some of the climate taxes. Catherine is a professor of political science studying environmental, climate, and energy policy at UBC. I know we have plenty of calls already on this. I want to get to them right away. Catherine is still with us. But let's go to Langley and Russell. Russell, what do you think about all these taxes? Uh, I, I actually live on the border of Langley, Surrey. So I'm, uh, I got that ugly 17.5% to deal with. Eventually, I'm a single person who lives in my house. I own a house, fortunately enough but I don't owe it outright. Eventually, I will not own a house. Not the way these taxes are going. And they shouldn't have gone up. All these things that are happening right now shouldn't be happening right now. We need to stop everything and slow it down. It's great environmentalist people to come on and make all these statements and make the green world. I totally agree. I lived here long enough to see the weather change. But you can't take the money out of our pockets like this. You're going to get a revolt eventually. Canadians will stand up and say, no, this can't happen anymore. I, I can't pay any more taxes, guys. You've got it. Uh, you've got every penny out of my pocket. That's my thought. Okay, well, thank you very much for the call. Catherine, what do you think about uh, Russell, who uh, lives in my neighbourhood, uh, you know, right on the border of Surrey and Langley, uh, really concerned about uh, just making things getting by? I mean, I think Russell's not alone. A lot of people are hurting because of the increase in the cost of living. Um, I, I think one of the promising measures is expanding the fraction of households that will get money back. The, um, the budget anticipates that by 2030, more than half of British Columbia households will be getting more money back under the carbon tax that, than they're paying. I think that's a great thing. I wish that it was happening sooner. Um, I think we tend to focus on the carbon tax, the impact it has on the price at the pump, when there are a lot of other things that are contributing. And there's a lot of other measures in the budget that will save, um, save British Columbians money. So the overall picture how much of what, what's causing that pain is actually climate action versus other things, and how can those climate actions actually save people money um, by reducing their dependence on fossil fuels? Interesting. Uh, do you not believe that there is a difference between maybe people living in the city and people living in the uh, suburbs or even in the interior when it comes to uh, their ability to fight uh, climate change? 
Um, definitely, there's. It's easier to take transit um, when you know one lives in a city with lots of transit options. When the distance one's travel, the distances one travels are smaller. That was a reason that BC brought in a rural tax credit many years ago. Um, I'm not aware if the the additional rebates take into account rural versus urban. Uh, in British Columbia, certainly they do in other provinces. So it may be the case already. Okay. Let's go to the West End of Vancouver and Steve. Steve, what are your thoughts on this? Hi, Bruce. So I think we can be looking at this really myopically in the sense that, okay, Vancouver, Canada, we have to, you know, we have to really be environmentally conscious and we're going to make a big difference. However, what we do and the austerity that we absorb in the name of, of helping the climate can be completely wiped out. All those taxes that that gentleman mentioned earlier and uh, what he's going through can be completely wiped out if India and China decide to pollute irresponsibly. And so I think there needs to be, I mean, if, if everyone was accountable and we all tightened our belt, then okay, I think this could be a little more acceptable. But well, thanks, Steve. Canada- no, I appreciate the call, and I think this gets back to what I was asking about uh, before, Catherine, uh, when it comes to getting other countries on board with taking similar measures. What do we do? Um, that's what the international negotiations are about, but Canada and other countries have also signed on to a moral principle that those who have contributed more and have greater capacity, have a greater responsibility. So every Canadian is emitting about twice the emissions of the average Chinese person um, and much more than the average Indian. So we tend to think that, oh, that the Chinese and the Indians are the problem and their, their emissions growth will undo the benefits. But the other way to think about it is all the harm that we in Canada have already done to the global climate has used up more than our share of the capacity and limited. We're not innocent. Opportunities. You know, we can't uh, necessarily just point the finger uh, at other countries. Uh, that's what I'm getting from you, Catherine. Absolutely. I mean, there's a there are huge numbers of people in India who don't have electricity. Uh, so their emissions growth is largely driven by providing electricity. Um, so for us to compare the pain of an extra three cents per year in gasoline prices with limiting um, opportunities in developing countries. I mean, in many African countries, the average emissions per person are about a 20th. And thank you for being with us. You know, slip slide in a way. No, I'm not talking about the weather, but home sales in and around Vancouver. They continue to, well, the sales continue to go down. In fact, the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver says, well, February's home sales were up, yeah, close to 77% from January. That's month over month. They're down 47% from a year before. Now, the board goes on to say for the month, uh, it totaled about 1,800 sales, and that's roughly 33% below the 10-year February sales average. So we're starting to see not a lot of product moving. 
And one has to wonder, given the interest rates, given everything that we're looking at right now, what direction are we going in? What do these numbers tell us and what should we be thinking? Well, to answer some of these questions, we bring in Brandon Ogmanson, uh, who is a chief economist with the BC Real Estate Association. Brandon, thanks so much for uh, joining us uh, this afternoon. Great to be here. Thanks. Uh, You know, when I take a look at these numbers and try to make some sort of sense out of it, the only thing that I'm getting uh, from here that uh, really is just standing out is um, home sellers are still just uh, sitting there waiting and not doing anything. The sellers, am I right? Yeah, I've been describing the market right now as as a low activity equilibrium. So we have very slow sales. They're still about 30% below what's normal. They're way below where we were last February when the housing market peaked. Uh, But they're just really below normal levels of sales. But also on the listing side, we're seeing, you know, I think listings across uh, Greater Vancouver, new listings were were down about 30, 40% year over year as well. So there's not a lot of action happening on either the buying or selling side. Not a great time to be a real estate agent, let's be honest. It's just, it's a low, it's a lot lower activity. It's coming off of, you know, uh, record high sales back from 2020, 2021, first part of 2022. So it's a a really big shift from the type of market we were in last year with multiple offers and, uh, you know, phones ringing off the hook uh, to to one that's very, very different. That's true. Okay. So when we start to take a look at uh, this lack of activity, lack of listings right now, uh, what are people looking for and what are we looking for in order for things to change? Is it all about interest rates? It really is. Um, I, you know, the demand that we saw just a year ago hasn't gone away. It's just really difficult to turn that demand into sales because it's really hard to qualify, especially if you're in your, your early 30s and looking to, to move, for, you know, maybe own a home for the first time. Uh, really, really difficult to do that when you need to qualify at like a 7.5% stress test rate. That's a huge barrier along with a, a pretty big down payment required as well. So uh, th- there's there's some real hurdles that are, are a lot higher than they were a year ago, especially for, for younger home uh, potential home buyers. So when do things change? How do you measure that? I know that's the magic question, but um, when when are you thinking that everything is going to start to turn around. Pull out the crystal ball here. It's really all about rates. So what we what we really need to see in our, our most likely scenario for this year uh, is that sales will be pretty slow until we see rates come down. And to see rates come down, we get inflation back to normal levels and have the Bank of Canada signal that not only is it pausing, like it signaled that it's, it's, it's previous meeting, uh, but it's likely going to start lowering rates if it's put off the break. Right now, uh, the Bank of Canada's overnight rate is about two percentage points above where they want it to be. Uh, they have, so they're really pricing the break on the on the economy. That's affecting the housing market. It means mortgage rates are higher. Once we get a really good signal that inflation is back back to normal, if the economy is slowing down, that, that causes the Bank of Canada to pivot. We'll see mortgage rates come down substantially, and that will start to spur the market again. Until we get rates, at least, you know, that qualifying rate, until people are qualifying at kind of below 6%, I think it's going to be difficult to see activity meaningfully pick up. 
So those people who aren't qualifying right now because of the interest rates, uh, we know that's going down. What is moving in the market? Uh, what are we looking at for uh, things that are actually selling at the moment? It's, it's not really one kind of product type that stands out. I mean, again, because young buyers, uh, and, and it really depends on what region you're looking in, but in a city like Vancouver, where obviously a lot of the affordable product is, is apartments, um, they're still fairly pricey. Prices haven't come down very much in the apartment sector for, for condos, uh, but also that's a segment that tends to cater to, to younger buyers and people in kind of the early stages of their careers. Those are exactly the types of buyers that the stress test and, and mortgage rates being this high hurt the most. Uh, so, so we're 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 seeing act, you know low amounts of activity around every sector. Single family uh, 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 housing really ramped up in, during the pandemic, and that slowed a lot, but more so in areas like the Fraser Valley, uh, less so maybe in Vancouver, but those are also, you know, Vancouver obviously has a very low inventory of single-family homes just because of, of the, uh, uh, the zoning and everything else in Vancouver. And it's Bruce Claggett in for Jill. We've been talking with BC Real Estate Association Chief Economist Brendan Ogmanson about uh, the fact that February home sales are down 33% in Vancouver from a 10-year average. And what that means, with a lot of products simply not moving and people just holding, staying put for the time being, and what uh, we can expect going into the future. Want to hear from you. Are you a buyer, a seller, or a holder honor right now? Give us a shout, 604-280-9898. Brandon is still with us. Let's go to Mike and Vernon. Mike, what's on your mind? So, I mean, you know, I'm I'm older, so I've watched this cycle roll through from the from you know graduating in the '70s through till now, and it's always up and down. It always has been. The '80s were 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 really down. And then the '90s, and then it picked up a little bit, and then in the '90s it dropped off again in in a lot of areas, but. You know, it's really, I kind of chuckle when we talk about interest rates. 7% interest rate when we bought our first house was an absolute dream. We were 18.5%. That's what it cost us for a mortgage in 1990. And I think that um, what's going to have to happen perhaps here is people are just going to have to get used to the fact that interest rates may stay up a little bit where I think they're in a reasonable spot right now, but uh, people just have to get used to it. So that's a big part of it. And then the other thing is a lot of people are just holding because they want to get more out of their places. But, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, there's a well, lot I think, of other Mike, your, your point about uh, the cycles are uh, quite true. And you're like me. I'm old enough to remember. Actually, I'm old enough to remember my parents' conversation back in the 80s when they faced uh, renewing mortgages or the mortgage at, uh, you know, uh, double-digit numbers, which is frightening by many standards. Uh, Brendan, is this what you're seeing? Uh, I mean, for so many years, we've had, you know, not a cycle, but uh, kind of like this belief that things would continue to go up. But it is cyclical still, isn't it? Yeah, it, you know, home prices, especially you know, in BC and Vancouver, have these periods where we have these really rapid accelerations because of we hit with a, a demand shock, whether you know the population's growing really fast, the economy's growing really fast, or interest rates fall to really low levels. 
prices accelerate and they tend to flatten out for periods and then we kind of rinse and repeat. Uh, the best thing we can do is to not have those rapid accelerations. The only way we can do that is when we have these demand shocks that, that we can't control, the government can't control, you know, we're a small economy, we're going to get um, you know, pushed around by global economic factors. Uh, what we can control is whether, you know, how fast and how much supply we can get to the market. And that's really the only thing that we can, we can uh, or the best way to kind of fix the market longer term is to make sure that we can offset those demand shocks with enough supply into the market fast enough so that uh, prices don't accelerate way above inflation the way they have been. Yeah, good point. I appreciate the phone call also from Vernon. Uh, talking about uh, just in the lower mainland and moving uh, out to parts toward the Fraser Valley. I'm not going to say deep in the valley, but uh, we've seen so much growth in residential home sales in the past uh, 15 years in areas like Surrey and Langley and, uh, you know, Abbotsford. Um, has this now changed? What, what's the big change or uh, impact when we start to take a look at interest rates? So the, the thing about the Fraser Valley that's really interesting, and you know, we talk about the Fraser Valley, including Surrey and Langley, which are part of Metro Vancouver, but for our, our real estate stats are in the Fraser Valley. But markets like, like Chilliwack and Surrey are two of the fastest growing cities in Canada over the past five years. They have all this natural kind of growth. And then we supercharged that demand during the pandemic because a lot of um, uh, households wanted to get away from big cities during the pandemic and they needed uh, their home to be uh, a school and an office and a rec center and all that space was a lot more affordable in Chilliwack than it was in the city of Vancouver. So with this huge amount of demand into these cities that didn't have the supply you know, to, to absorb all that demand, right? and it caused prices to, to really accelerate, uh, then you get rates going uh, going up very fast in the last year. Affordability has really deteriorated in those markets compared to what it was pre-pandemic. And demand has, has slowed, but the sort of case for those cities is still is still there. They're still growing really fast as that price is level ahead of, of, uh, of that growth. Absolutely. Let's go to uh, Marilyn in Surrey. Marilyn, what are your thoughts? Oh, hi. Um, just a question. Um, when the market was really hot and things were selling at a, you know, people were just counter, not countering, but you had offers offers, 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 and getting way above asking price, the rates were low, and then all of a sudden there's a turn in the market, and some people who bought, bought at a high rate, let's say they bought it for a million, and all of a sudden you've lost a couple hundred thousand dollars because the market dropped. So my question, I guess, is with the um, interest that is now on mortgages, and the rates that have dropped in the housing markets um, and the people that have lost prior to that, what, you know, is, is the market like equivalent or is it the people that are buying now are afraid of the interest rates because they're high? But in reality, you're buying at a lower a price than you would have two, three years ago. Okay, I it's a very yeah. No, that's a, it's, an, it's an astute observation that um, is something that, that we've you know um, been looking at recently. Is just that uh, if you were in the market a year ago at peak prices and low rates, and then a year later, some of the so you had your your eye on a house that was you know in, in Surrey and it was one point six, and now it's one point three or something. Um, you know, even though rates are higher, your affordability 
um, your like you know, mortgage calculations actually improve. So in some cases, even though rates are higher, prices have come down in some to offset uh, the increase in rates and your affordability in some cases actually improved by you know, 10% or so. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think in the Fraser Valley in particular, uh, we've seen uh, prices really stabilize after you know, they fell for six or seven straight months, but seem to have turned at the around the end of 2022 in the November, December period because that affordability calculation has, has flipped. Uh, and even though rates are as high as they are, um, um, affordability has actually improved somewhat because some of those market prices have come down, you know, 25%. Marilyn, does that answer your question a bit? Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the uh, for the call. I appreciate that. Brendan, when we start talking about uh, prices going down and losing so much money, you know, it's it's on paper, right? But uh, on paper, still can mean a lot. That's where our equity is. Uh, do you get people, do you think there is a factor where people look at this more as buying a residence or a, like a place to live or buying a portfolio? Um, you know, if, if we're talking about investors, investors are taking a risk and, you know, prices can go up and prices can go down. Uh, and that, that's the risk that you take as an investor in the housing space. You know, housing is not a risk free, is not a risk free as an investment for people who are buying a principal residence. Uh, if you were in, you know, the, the markets that were hit the hardest were really single family homes. So the most expensive product types, the sort of saving grace in the, in, in that is that, uh, to buy a home over a million dollars, you need to put down more than 20% uh, as a down payment. And then you also need to qualify at a pretty hefty uh, rate as well on that mortgage. So the, the, the homeowners that bought uh, in at sort of near the peak of the most expensive prices have a huge amount of equity in those homes. So even though um, the prices have come down and they've lost some of that equity temporarily, um, they, they have a pretty substantial cushion because of the down payment. Uh, and also, if they're holding it over the next five years, they're also going to pay a lot more equity into the home through their, their mortgage payment. So Very good point. It, 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 it hurts. It hurts for sure. But there isn't like we haven't seen any kind of panic or, or you know, rise in, in financial instability in those households because they tend to be the households that can that, you know, somewhat fortunately could most withstand that correction. Excellent information. And Brendan, thank you so much for uh, your insights on this, at least uh, for this point in time, because uh, it's something we're all going to be watching in the next bit. My pleasure. Thank you. On Friday, Metro Vancouver, and we're talking about the regional district here, voted to award three five-year contracts to send tens of thousands of tons of excess trash to landfills across the border in the United States and also into the interior of our province. Those contracts are worth anywhere from about $45 bucks to about $49 bucks each. And they're the ones that are for processing the waste that really goes beyond the capacity of Metro Vancouver's waste disposal facilities like the uh, Delta Landfill and the incinerator over in Burnaby. But the cost of moving that trash is very expensive. How expensive is it? Well, $150 million to send that trash. That's one number that has been bantied about. Um, is it necessary? Where are we going with this? Is this a surprise? Well, let's bring in Chris Allen. He's uh, the director of Metro Vancouver's Solid Waste Operations. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. 
Hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Do I have the numbers right? Uh, yes. In, in, in rough terms, the region, we produce a little over a million tons of waste that needs disposal, and our regional capacity is, is right around a million tons. So there is a little bit of excess that needs to go out of region for disposal. And people may not realize this, uh, but we do have, um, we're able to handle a certain amount of gas. And I mentioned the landfill in Delta that's been there for years. And uh, also there's that incinerator in Burnaby, uh, but they can only handle so much. So what we're talking about is everything above and beyond. But I thought that we were in the process of reducing waste and getting it down to you know, what we wouldn't have to ship away. Not the case? Uh, uh, no, correct. We are we are reducing waste. Um, our recycling rate in the region is ticked up another notch. We're at 65% um, overall recycling in, in the region. Uh, of course, the big factor that is a challenge is, of course, population growth. So the region continues to grow um, regionally, and we're adding... I think it was like roughly 40,000 people that came in um, between 20 and 2020 and 2021. So the continued growth of the region population-wise, um, you know, contributes obviously to the amount of recycling and also the amount of disposal required in the region. Now, the Daily Paper has said that the city of Vancouver has generated more waste in each of the past four years than at any other time in the 1960s. Don't know if that's actually correct, is it? Uh, well, I don't have the city numbers in front of me, but I do know that as a region in the in the Metro Vancouver region, that no, our di- our disposal has been going down. Um, so you'll see numbers um, have, have decreased over the years, and like I said, um, you know, on a per capita basis, that has been decreasing um, quite dramatically. Like it's almost half of what it was back in the mid '90s on a per capita basis. But of course, the uh, population of the region has increased by over a million people in that time frame. Now, there are those people for years up in the Cash Creek area, where much of this uh, excess waste goes to, that have said, no, we don't want any more of it. Would there come a time, and are you working with projections that would think that there might be a time where you're not shipping any out of Metro Vancouver? Uh, absolutely. That's uh, that's the goal of the region, um, you know, working on the first three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle, and and eliminating uh, as much as we can from, from the bottom of, the, of that pyramid, inverted pyramid, where it's requiring disposal. So how many years away are we from that? Ah, that is a great question. Um, and uh, that is one hard to pin a number on, um, you know. We, Five uh, years? Ten years? Fifty uh, years? So we get to uh, out-of-region... Out of region, um, you know, we we have averaged between 35,000 and 145,000 tons of waste going out of region in the last five years. Um, so depending on how things go, we could get that down in the next number of years, um, down to where we're not requiring uh, a lot of additional out of region capacity. So that's the goal. Now, okay, so... Getting a year may be difficult, but there is a reason why I'm asking the question, and it is this. Uh, Is there the possibility of expanding either the uh, dump in Delta or the the incinerator in Burnaby? Or is that something that just can't be done at this point because it's not the direction you want to go in? Uh, Well, first off, yeah, the direction that we want to go in is is obviously to reduce waste as much as possible. We want to have to dispose of as little as possible. 
The Vancouver landfill operates under a permit, so there's a permitted amount that is allowed into the landfill every year, and that's capped at 750,000 tonnes per year. And the waste energy facility is operated at maximum capacity, and it's it's physically limited in terms of how much can go through there in a in a given year, and it's it's around 250,000 tonnes per year. So what do we do now? Where are we looking? What's our next step? Uh, well, one of the things that we do, um, we have a lot of information campaigns that we do. Um, there's a number of them um, that focus um, the public's attention on, on steps that they can take to help reduce waste in the region, um, whether it's through organics, our Love Food, Hate Waste campaign to make people realize the amount of food waste that's still in the in the waste stream that that either shouldn't shouldn't be there or should be on the on the composting side of things, um, and also on the reduction and reuse things. So we've got campaigns like the Think Thrice campaign, which focuses on clothing reuse and and you know, because that's another area where we've got roughly about 20,000 tons a year of clothing that's going for disposal, um, driven by the fact that consumers consume a lot more in terms of clothing than they did um, historically in, say, the 80s. Chris Allen, thank you so much. Uh, a pleasure, uh, you know, getting a little bit more information and pulling back the curtain on our garbage and what's happening with us, with that, and with us uh, figuring out ways to reduce it. Have a great afternoon, Chris. Thanks, Bruce.